Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello and welcome. Thanks for joining us for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. Our discussion for this podcast series focuses on leadership topics within pharmacy practice, including the business of pharmacy, development of leadership skills, career transitions, and more. My name is Alyssa Ballman, and I am currently a PGY2 HSPAL resident at Methodist LeBonner Healthcare in Memphis, Tennessee. I will be your host today for the Pharmacy Leadership Podcast. With me today are Danielle Womack, Tamara Bezdechek, and Nick Godsa. Can each of you tell me a little more about yourself and your practice site? Thanks, Alyssa. My name is Danielle Womack, and I'm the Vice President of Public Affairs at the Pharmacy Society of Wisconsin, one of the nation's largest state-based pharmacy organizations. Unlike many states, we are a combined state organization, meaning we have members from all practice settings, and we are an ASHP affiliate in Wisconsin. Hey, my name is Nick Gosdam, the Assistant Director of Specialty Pharmacy at Cone Health in Greensboro, North Carolina. I have oversight of our um, dual credit specialty pharmacy services um, with our centralized dispensing and centralized call center. But the majority of our specialty pharmacy team um, is decentralized and embedded in our specialty clinics with the majority of our pharmacists embedded in the clinic, um, having collaborative practice agreements with their um, providers in their respective locations. Hello, everyone. Excited to be here. My name is Tamara Bezdechek. Many of my colleagues call me Tammy. I'm a medication policy manager at M-Health Fairview and Fairview Pharmacy Services in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I've been a pharmacist for about 18 years and I've spent most of my time in the acute care space um, working on interdisciplinary teams in critical care and uh, clinical management. And I've become passionate about advocacy through our state affiliate chapter, the Minnesota Society of Health System Pharmacists, where I currently serve as the co-chair to our statewide pharmacy advocacy coalition called the Minnesota Pharmacy Alliance. And I represent MSHP on this group. And this coalition consists of representatives from our state organizations and the College of Pharmacy, um, and we share a lobbyist that helps represent us at the Capitol. Great. Thanks for joining us today, Danielle, Tamara, and Nick. Let's get started talking about today's topic, provider status for pharmacists. Provider status really can be thought of in a few different ways, where there's prescribing authority, scope of practice, and what it means for payment for services. Each of you comment on why provider status is becoming a necessity within pharmacy and how it has evolved within your state. Hi, Alyssa. This is Tamara. Thank you for this great question to get us started. I think what our you know, collective society has gone through over the past two to three years has really highlighted not only that pharmacists are an integral part of the interdisciplinary healthcare team, but that we are the most accessible. And I think provider status is becoming a necessity as we start to think about our specific patient needs and community care. I think many of us still think of provider status as something that we have been working towards at the federal level. And of course, we continue to support that very important designation. But at the state level, there are many things we can do to continue to improve um, expansion of care and access. In Minnesota, we've been recognized as providers by our state program since around 2008. And since that time, we've continued to work on initiatives to both support our clinical services, but also enhance reimbursement for other initiatives. 
Within the past four years, we've passed scope legislation focused on pharmacist prescribing authority. We passed, we passed a bill that allows for pharmacists to prescribe naloxone, oral contraceptives, to, tobacco cessation medications um, through board protocol. We've also modified our state statute to allow for pharmacists to perform telepharmacy and telehealth activities. Just this year, we advocated along with an expanded coalition of key stakeholders from around the state for pharmacists prescribing authority for pre-exposure and post-exposure HIV prophylaxis. And um, that bill was included in our state health omnibus bill, but unfortunately did not pass due to uh, the legislator not coming to a decision before our deadline. We continue to be working towards decreasing age limits for vaccinations and expanding the ability to administer a wider range of medications. Um, and we just passed a bill this year to allow us to do more medication administration and testing. Um, but really, I, I think for, from our standpoint, a key initiative to sustain all of the care that we are providing to our state is reimbursement for you know, not only the services that we, we already get reimbursed for, but for even more expanded services, like I mentioned, the medication administration, medication synchronization, adherence packaging, and depending on the payer, this is not consistently recognized as billable. This is Danielle, and I would echo a lot of what Tamara said. In Wisconsin, um, we really focused on the patient aspect issues, making sure that our patients had access to pharmacist-provided care. In Wisconsin, we actually have very broad scope of practice for pharmacists. They can immunize patients of any age with any ACIP-recommended vaccine. Um, they can administer point-of-care testing. They can prescribe, order and prescribe naloxone. So there's a number of things pharmacists can do in Wisconsin independently. But like was mentioned before, in order to really sustain that, there has to be an equitable reimbursement and payment model in place, particularly during the pandemic when the scope of those services in, pharmac in pharmacies were really exploding. Um, what we found was more and more pharmacies were saying, I would love to provide this service. My community needs this service, but I can't have my staff spending all day, every day providing services that were not paid for. And that's very reasonable. And it is, of course, a business decision that pharmacies have to make. So for us in Wisconsin, when we started really seriously talking about pursuing provider status at the state level about five years ago, we sat down and we said, okay, what is a pharmacist scope in Wisconsin? Um, what is allowed to be done under collaborative practice, which Wisconsin law says anything can be done by a pharmacist under collaborative practice. The running joke is, yes, a pharmacist could do brain surgery if it was delegated to them, but we're missing this payment piece. So we decided here to focus on payment. And as we had discussions um, internally and with our external partners, we decided to focus on our state Medicaid program first, not only focus on them, but focus on them first. So we achieved uh, Medicaid provider status for any service within a pharmacist scope or delegated to a pharmacist last fall. Um, they're currently in the process of actually implementing everything, getting pharmacists enrolled, getting our CMS state plan amendment approved, things like that. So our pharmacists haven't started billing under the Medicaid program yet for those types of services, but we're really excited about what it will mean to expand access um, to some of our most vulnerable populations in the state. 
Yeah, absolutely. This is Nick. Um, I think provider status is increasingly important and becoming necessary to really advocate within our pharmacy profession profession because it, it is necessary to continue to advance our profession forward and you know, quite simply meet the advancing needs of healthcare um, across our communities. Pharmacists are continuing to assume more clinical roles um, in the face of new complexities every year, increasing complexities in medication regimens and adherence and financial barriers. So I think it's really important to have processes in place and pharmacists um, with the skill sets to be in positions of practice at the top of their license. Um, and, and just echoing what's already been said, I think it's very fair to advocate for, for pharmacists to be appropriately compensated for this uh, increasing amount of knowledge work that they're being leaned on um, to provide. And, and really, you know, what it comes down to is, you know, provider status will enable us to have that reimbursement structure to build sustainable business models um, where we'd be more likely to incorporate pharmacists into the most appropriate care settings where currently, um, just based off the you know economics of it, you may have um, advanced practice providers like a nurse practitioner or um, PA that um, it, it, you know is in a setting that really could be you know utilized by pharmacists and their expertise and their medication knowledge, but we just don't have the infrastructure for it from a business sustainability perspective. So, so I think that's important. Um, North Carolina has done. A lot of the same things uh, we've already discussed um, around the state Medicaid and being able to you know bill for services there, but um, you're you're really just scratching the surface. Um, there's not again and come back that goes back to that infrastructure and um, that's a little bit missing as far as reimbursement goes, and it makes it difficult to continue to advocate for putting pharmacists in positions to make a big impact on patients. Definitely. Thank you for those examples and explanation of why provider status continues to be a relevant topic. More specifically, can each of you mention what happened in your state through the legislation process to obtain collaborative practice agreements in prescribing authority? Yeah, absolutely. This is Nick again. Um, collaborative practice agreements have existed in North Carolina for, for a long time, since the early 2000s. Um, uh, you know, it's different. The process is different in every state, but it's a very formal process in North Carolina through the Board of Pharmacy where a protocol is developed with the supervising physician is approved by the Board of Pharmacy and the Board of Medicine. And there's actually a um, credential that we call a CPP um, or clinical pharmacist practitioner that's given to pharmacists with this uh, authority. So, um, it kind of creates a different pathway for pharmacists to go to be able to set up those collaborative practices. But it is, um, you know, what our state was comfortable with as far as through having oversight in the Board of Pharmacy to provide um, extra, um, you know, extra guidance around continuing education and ensuring pharmacists are meeting their competencies to practice within that um, CPP role, um, you know, maintain those competencies to have that scope of practice that's defined um, in their protocol. But similarly, what was discussed before, you know, pharmacists have a lot of autonomy within that protocol. Um, If the supervising physician is comfortable delegating it to them and it's in the protocol, it's within the pharmacist scope. Um, And that's that's all also reviewed by the Board of Pharmacy um, as well. So um, it's a pretty good structure. 
This is Tamara. Um, I, I'll start by talking a little bit about our independent prescribing authority initiatives that I, I, I alluded to earlier. Um, and, and those initiatives started back in 2017 and, and took us about four years to pass. Uh, we found that it took that long because uh, we really needed to educate our legislators on the importance of the medication access that we were discussing and what that really means and what the demographics of our state look like as it pertains to these priorities and, and how much closer really, again, we talk about access all the time, Minnesotans live to a pharmacy as opposed to their clinic or other healthcare providers. Um, we were very transparent with other state healthcare organizations um, that existed, and we were able to gain endorsement for um, kind of these priorities from some of the organizations. While, of course, we continued through those four years to have some opposition to to these priorities. But as we continue to reintroduce our bills over the years, we found that we were seeing less and less opposition until we, we ultimately passed um, our independent prescribing bill. And, and through that process, we've actually gained the next step, which was, you know, adding in more medications for independent prescribing. And we were approached by one of the senators who was introducing an HIV pre-exposure and post-exposure prophylaxis bill that would allow for pharmacists to prescribe these medications. Um, and, and we were working with them. And that was also included in this year's, um, like I mentioned, omnibus bill. But And so our, our I'll say, um, our journey on these, um, our learning curve and, and always very specific to um, kind of the, the legislators that are working at that time and, and what they are willing to bring forward. As it pertains to um, collaborative practice agreements, those, again, we've had in place for almost two decades now in the state of Minnesota. And kind of similar to Nick, um, and maybe not, um, it, we don't necessarily have the credentialing like he has, but we do have that relationship. And we've been working in over time on expanding and pushed for expanded CPAs to allow for pharmacists to have more than one pharmacist and to more than one practitioner. In Wisconsin, um, we've also had collaborative practice agreements for um, more than a decade. Um, here, um, things are a little less regulated in terms of the collaborative practice agreements than in the other two states that have spoken. So here, a physician can delegate to a pharmacist. It's only a physician. It can't be a, any other type of provider. A physician can delegate to as many pharmacists as they would like, and a collaborative practice agreement can include as many pharmacists as they would like. So many of the collaborative practice agreements that we see are um, any pharmacist working at X location. Um, we even have one collaborative practice agreement that's from a physician at our um, Department of Health that is for any pharmacist in the state. Um, so we have some flexibility there. Really, the only regulation is that the delegation has to be documented as to who is delegating to whom and what they are delegating. There's no additional credential required. Um, there's no additional CE, although, of course, professional standards of practice are, are relevant. The pharmacist you know, needs to be competent in the, the action that they're performing under the delegation. So, the most common delegation protocols that we see are for um, administration of specific medications. So pharmacists can administer injectable medications um, without a collaborative practice agreement, but the actual ability to prescribe those injections is often delegated. 
Um, many prescriptive authorities are delegated through CPAs, things like PrEP and PEP, um, things like oral contraceptive products, travel medications, so things like that, a number of, of, of things. And then we also have a number of pharmacists who work in ambulatory settings who have much broader collaborative practice agreements for really comprehensive medication management, whether that's of anti-coag patients, diabetes patients, um, transplant patients. So really making sure that those pharmacists are an integral part of the team. As far as um, the scope of, of payment process in our state, that came about a little bit differently. Um, that was much more recent. And, and like I said before, we sort of detached prescribing and, and collaborative practice um, from, from that um, legislative process. That's really interesting how each state differs. Thank you, guys. There's always the proverbial lower-hanging fruit. Tamara, can you talk about some of the easier wins or things that were easier to accomplish for our listeners who are trying to find a good place to start in this journey to provider status? Hey, thanks, Alyssa. I really love this question, and I think it's kind of a tough one to answer. I would say the legislative process um, there's few things easy about it. And it's like I mentioned before, it's pretty time confusing, uh, time consuming and, and can take many years to pass a bill. But for those who are just getting started, started in this advocacy journey, I think a really great place to start is to get to know your state legislators and to meet them and to educate them on simply what medication access is, medication safety, and to share your story of how you became a pharmacist. Uh, there will inevitably be a connection there because we are also tightly tied to health and everyone wants the same goal, which is a healthier state. And what we have found over the past five to six years is that it was our close relationship that we gained with our legislators and our representatives and senators that helped us move our bills along. They saw the access needs that we saw and we were able to share stories about the differences that pharmacists make in the communities and in our hospitals. And, and I think secondly, the big thing to know is that we're incredibly lucky to have this vast network through ASHP. And I highly would recommend anyone in the beginning stages of this journey um, to utilize the network that we have through ASHP to assist in reaching out to other state organizations and reaching out to their legislators for uh, um, for legislative language, rather, um, and to start there because there's a good chance that other states are grappling with the same priorities that you are, and, and everyone is willing to share their stories and, and their adventures as they navigate through this. And there, for sure, there's a good chance that as you go through it, you know, state specific, you may need to negotiate the language that you bring forward that you may have um, copied from another state, but it's a great starting place as well. Thank you, Tamara. I think those are helpful success stories for our listeners. Do any of you think that the pandemic has influenced or accelerated the recognition of provider status for pharmacists? Yeah, hi, this is Tamara again, and I, I really do. Um, I will add, you know, that after the last two to three years, people are still surprised to hear that we're not fully recognized as providers. I think that our role on the front lines to endure and end this pandemic, whether it be by administering vaccines, monoclonal antibodies, providing oral COVID therapies, or simply just being a safe space to listen and discuss therapies and misinformation that has been um, brought to us, has really put us 
at the center of ending this pandemic. And what we need to do now is make sure that we're really capturing these stories and share how our patients and community members will lose out, what they're going to lose out if, you know, this access when the federal authority goes away and, and what at our state level specifically, what activities that we will not be able, that will not be accessible to our patients and our community anymore when that goes away. Um, I really feel passionate that we need to create a sense of urgency around this. Um, and what it would mean for our state uh, should we go back to not having these services. Um, and then again, part of that is just recognizing that along with this is that reimbursement for these services and, and, and really outlining that the current models that we have in each state um, are not sustainable and, and really will crumble and we will not be able to provide these services without some sort of uh, uh, other possibility for receiving reimbursement for it, for our practices. I would 100% agree that the pandemic has um, really influenced the recognition, recognition of provider status here in Wisconsin. Um, I, I think I mentioned this before, but, but we, it was about five years ago that we really started um, seriously considering, okay, how are we going to achieve this equitable reimbursement for pharmacists in our state? And just due to the timing of the pandemic, you know, right when we were getting ready to introduce our, our legislation was when um, the pandemic really hit. So I, I do think the fact that pharmacists were so integral to providing patients care during lockdown, to the vaccine rollout, to monoclonal antibody administration and other treatment administration, I think that really did help our legislators see that pharmacy doesn't just equal dispensing, which unfortunately was something that we had to do a lot of education around. Um, so I think it was helpful. It's a little bit of a like what came first situation, because I do think it was helpful that we had started to lay the groundwork about the important role that pharmacists play. But I also think that the pandemic helped to really bring that to the to the forefront. We're very lucky here that in addition to the payment piece, our legislature recognized that the PrEP Act amendments, for example, allowing technicians to administer vaccines, those types of things weren't going to last forever. So we were able to pass legislation that permanently essentially makes the PrEP Act changes and allowances for pharmacist, technician, and intern um, scope of practice relating to vaccines and medication administration permanent. So we were um, very fortunate to have legislators who recognized that. And we were very fortunate to have pharmacists across the state who were willing to stand up and say, you know, this is, this is going to be a huge access gap that's going to go away when, when the public health emergency is over and we need to solve it now. Um, so we're really excited um, that, that that was able to get done. There are still a few things that will definitely change. And I completely agree that we need to, to make sure that our states are ready for when the public health emergency is, is done and, and um, that we don't leave access gaps. But um, we've been very fortunate with our ability to um, spread the word about pharmacists in crucial roles in their communities in order to get a lot of that permanized here in Wisconsin. Yeah, this is Nick again. Um, I, you know, I, I think it remains to be seen you know, long term if, there, if this is ultimately going to 
the pandemic and the situation is ultimately going to contribute to acceleration of um, getting to our end goal as a profession. But um, yeah, it's pretty, you know, objective fact that there's been a significant increase in interest with regards to the scope of pharmacist responsibilities. And that's, and that's evidenced by a lot of things, including pharmacy being, you know, kind of at the center of the vaccination efforts and the, um, oral COVID antiviral treatments and uh, more primary care health tech care items. That's more state specific. But I know in North Carolina, we've really focused on some broader authorities for pharmacists around tobacco cessation, around uh, birth control, contraception, um, and telehealth in general. I think obviously uh, is a big one too. Um, you know, however, I think, you know, it always comes down to money, right? Um, I think that's going to continue to be one of the, the barriers um, that will hold us back long term. And that, that sentiment kind of prevails um, a lot of the, a lot of current situations. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to cost insurance companies and, and arguably the healthcare system as a whole or the healthcare um, ecosystem as a whole. Um, a lot of money to, you know, give pharmacists provider status and reimburse them for cognitive services. So that's a barrier that we have to have in the back of our mind. And, you know, how do we, how do we plan for that? How do we navigate that? And um, how do we sell the value story to, to understand um, that, you know, and help, and, you know, help our legislators understand that, you know, despite there being some upfront costs around, you know, pharmacists having provider status, um, you know, clinical outcomes are and population health initiatives are in, in the long run going to improve and, and lead to decreased costs in the long term. I completely agree. And I know here in Tennessee, pharmacists really led the vaccination rollout, the COVID treatments, and we really flexed into different roles when there were staff shortages or if there were needs outside of your typical pharmacy or, you know, traditional pharmacy practice. Nick and Danielle, what do you think the next steps are in your state? Yeah, um, and just to kind of, this is Nick again, just to build off of that. I mean, I think we need to capitalize on this recent momentum we've had and, and not get complacent and kind of, you know, n- not let that story around, you know, the COVID-19 pan- pandemic and the impact farms has had go by the wayside. Um, I think that starts with continuing to get involved from a legislative perspective, get involved with your board of pharmacies. Uh, make sure that, um, you know, your organizations, your practice settings are being represented on your board of pharmacy. Um, there's a lot of different practice settings in pharmacy. There are some that are more traditional and some that are more on the forefront. And you want to make sure that your your state organizations, affiliates, your boards of pharmacy have equal representation across those practice settings. But with that, I think it's important to develop a united front. There is a lot of even internally, I think our our own worst enemy is ourselves as a profession. There's a lot of internal um, discussion around what the future of pharmacy looks like and what provider status looks like. So uh, I think it's important um, that you know we we break down our silos and get on the same page there. One of the things I think is important with that is understanding, um, utilizing, and embracing technology to offset some of these traditional manual pharmacy tasks to free up our teams and our our pharmacists and our technicians to practice in settings that can utilize their knowledge base, can utilize um, this, you know, their skill set, their license so they can practice 
at that at that high level. I think that's really important. And um, with that comes change, and you know, and potentially big change. So that that can be scary. But um, I think we got to we have to embrace that as a profession um, in order to get us to the next step and uh, build off the momentum we've had in the last couple of years. In our state, we're really um, focused right now on getting um, billing for through our Medicaid program off the ground. We're working very closely with our uh, my counterparts from Washington State who um, have had great successes with um, pharmacists billing for services. So we're working closely with them to learn some lessons learned from their experience. We're hoping to have pharmacists um, fully billing through our Medicaid program by early 2023. So making sure they have everything that they need in place for that whether that's billing software, billing teams, collaborative practice agreements that they might want for services they want to offer, making sure that they're able to educate patients. Um, Because there are changes for patients when when a provider um, goes from not billing to billing. So making sure that there's education there. Um, Of course, you know, we're also looking to the future for um, how we can make sure that commercial payers are also equitably reimbursing our pharmacists for services. And, and I know that, you know, over the years, the federal provider status conversation has sort of ebbed and flowed, but I still think it's a really important conversation to have for all of our Medicare patients. So working together with the other state associations and, of course, with our national associations, including, of course, ASHP, to try to continue to move that forward. I think as more states act, sometimes that sort of compels the federal government to act. Sometimes things sort of bubble up from the states. Um, So I think working collaboratively together um, to continue not to lose sight of federal provider status as we also work on state level provider status. So, you know, I've talked a lot about our really broad collaborative practice agreements, but it's not always easy to get a CPA in Wisconsin, Um, particularly um, our independent pharmacies sometimes have a hard time getting getting CPAs in place. So we are looking for a few scope, a, a few scope expansion things as well. Oral contraceptive prescribing is is something we've been focused on, PrEP and PEP prescribing, um, some tobacco cessation services as well, looking at, well, maybe we'll take take away the need for a CPA for those types of services just to remove some of those administrative barriers um, and, and, again, make sure that whether your pharmacy can get a CPA or not, patients have access to those services. Like so many states, um, we have really urban parts of our state and really rural parts. And so um, we want to make sure that we're, we're keeping all of our patient populations in mind and making sure that they, they all have access to those pharmacist-provided services. That's a great point you both made. Obtaining provider status really requires all of us to work collaboratively as a country. Nick, what advice do you have for pharmacists that are looking to get engaged with their state affiliates in National Pharmacy Association? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of alluded to this already, but just getting involved, um, you know, with with organizations in your area, um, ASHP, your state or local affiliates are great places to start uh, and really see what efforts are already ongoing. Um, obviously, um, voices are louder with, with more numbers, and um, there's a lot of great grassroots movements in most of our states right now um, around provider status, around collaborative practice agreements. So um, just reaching out to your peers, reaching out to those organizations, seeing how um, how we can get involved, um, tapping into enthusiastic bases, including schools of pharmacy or your academic medical centers that may have more resources as well um, from, you know, marketing perspective or may have ongoing efforts as well. 
Um, and I mentioned as well, having representation on the board of pharmacy. Um, and for those that are really passionate about that and advocacy, considering, you know, um, providing service um, to, to your board of pharmacy or, um, or your local organizations, I, I think is really important. Um, it's just really important to get involved. However, whatever that looks like for you, however much time you have to put aside for that, um, I think that's very important. Thanks, Nick. That's great advice for our listeners. You're exactly right that getting involved and working together is really what's going to drive our success. As we wrap up, can each of you describe what you envision for pharmacist provider status? For example, do you foresee certification or what does the end game look like in your opinion? This is Tamara. I, I think I might start by reiterating something that Nick had said earlier in the podcast, which was really seeing pharmacists practice at the top of their licensure. And I might take that one step further and say, having pharmacists practice at the top of their education, meaning that we continue to be able to provide to our patients and our community what we've been trained to do. And then, of course, in order to support that, similarly, having our technicians be able to practice at the top of their education as well. Part of that will also include being <laughs> paid for our services. It's a recurring theme here. As far as credentialing, this is something and um, I really I have to be honest that I'm not quite sure. And I'm really I'm really um, think that maybe initially I don't think that it's necessary. That's kind of my, my first thought here, but I'd really be curious to hear what Danielle and Nick have to say about that. And finally, what does the end game look like? I, I think this is a tough one to answer. I think that we're still probably pretty far out from having, you know, an end game because healthcare is a constantly evolving field and world. And who would have thought three years ago we would be in the position that we are right now? So for me, the end game isn't just, you know, receiving provider status. Uh, receiving reimbursement for services, I think it's it's definitely continuing to have a seat at the table on our larger healthcare initiatives and, and, and really having a voice. And I think that kind of starts with what Nick had said with the last question, which is getting involved and, and knowing th those in all of the professional settings and professional organizations across your state and, and just being a part of the conversation being had. Yeah, this is Danielle. You know, I think, um, I do think it's hard. I agree. I think it's hard to say sort of what the end game is going to look like. I think 10 years ago, if you asked me what the end game was going to look like, I would not have thought that we would be in the position that we're in today. And in, in some ways that's, there's, there's positives. And of course there's negatives as well to that. I do think as healthcare gets more and more integrated, um, and as, as technology and telehealth becomes more prominent in all of our lives, regardless of the pandemic. Um, I do think that pharmacists, you know, will continue to need to, to, to adapt, but I also think that there'll be more and more services that um, they'll be able to provide to their patients. You know, Nick mentioned earlier about making sure that we're using technology in the best way we can and, and making sure that pharmacists are able to practice at the top of their license um, by utilizing technology. And I would say also empowering our technicians and our learners um, to be able to perform tasks that really um, free up pharmacist time to, per to perform those um, important patient care services as well is going to be really important moving forward. I do think 
you know, payment for services has been a lot of what we've talked about today, but I do think, you know, that equitable reimbursement, it is, it is necessary. Um, at the end of the day, these services can't be provided if they're not being funded. Um, and so I, I do think that we're going to continue to see a, a push for, for making sure that that pharmacists are, are paid for the services that they're providing. I don't think that's something crazy to ask, right? You know, you should, of course, be compensated for the services that are being provided, but it's it's something that we've we've had to fight for. Here in Wisconsin, I don't foresee any sort of mandatory certification or additional licensure requirements for our pharmacists. I think we've taken the approach over the past few decades of of providing education, providing resources, but not um, mandating things. And that's been really successful for us. Um, So I don't necessarily see anything like that coming down the pike for us. But, you know, as things evolve, um, there's always opportunities for collaboration and education. And that's something that we will, of course, continue um, to promote within our state. Yeah, those are all great points. You know, I'll just reiterate from the financial perspective, I I think the the future financial landscape as far as pharmacists are concerned and reimbursement for their services is really going to, um, you know, is really going to impact what the future looks like, whether that's more of a fee for service uh, model, which a lot of our providers are operating in today, or if there's some more innovative value-based reimbursement models that pharmacists can be a part of in the future, you know, just just working in the industry uh, that really that, that's really going to end up shaping a lot. But outside of that, I think just philosophically, there's a lot um, a lot of the answer to this question is still up for the industry to decide. I think there's still there's still this kind of internal debate on what current pharmacy education should look like if there should or shouldn't be stratification for pharmacists where some could be allowed to have a collaborative practice where some shouldn't. Um, you know, there's just there's just honestly a little bit of a debate going on still there, and that's where I think a lot of our comments around unification are important. And um, whatever that looks like, uh, having a collective voice, you know, it, it, from that perspective. Uh, me personally, I think the PharmD education um, is is very good and gives folks the tools to be successful in a lot of these roles that we're talking about for the future. But I think it's going to continue to be important for us to emphasize, obviously, the reimbursement aspect, but also what pharmacists are doing after they graduate, um, including uh, being advocates for postgraduate training and residency and fellowships. And, you know, and that's and that's kind of agnostic of any practice setting, whether that's in, in a community pharmacy, in a health system, in an ambulatory clinic. You know, we need to um, just the education piece isn't enough. We need to make sure that we have a good structure for ongoing, continuing education um, through through many means, so that pharmacists can be competent for um, these these roles with collaborative practice agreements and, and be recognized as providers. But we're starting to see a lot of that. Um, you know, like I mentioned in North Carolina, we do have the CPP credential, but um, we're starting to see more initiatives being approved for that all pharmacists can, can complete, like I said, tobacco cessation, prescribing immunizations, birth control, um, post-exposure prophylaxis. So we kind of have to a little bit of a competing model in it within our own state. So I think that goes, you know, I think that goes into some of the comments again, as well as that, you know, we need to continue to um, work collectively and, and move forward in the best route to, to meet some of these goals. 
It's exciting to hear your visions, and I definitely think provider status will continue to be a hot topic. That's all the time we have today. I want to thank Danielle, Tamara, and Nick for joining me to discuss provider status for pharmacists. Find more member-exclusive content, including resources for self-development, leading pharmacy enterprises and teams, and practice management on the ASHP website. Thank you for joining us, and be sure to subscribe to the ASHP official podcast. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.